That was a great song. Thank you, choir. That goes right along with what I'm preaching, and so thank you, Spirit. <laughs> and so let's uh, let's go ahead and <coughs> excuse me. Let's go ahead and uh, pray together. Lord, we love you. Thank you for gathering us together again in your house uh, as your servants and as your friends and as your uh, as as your children, God. And and Lord, I just pray that that as we come together as a family of believers, God, that you would be exalted in this place, that you would be highly lifted up in our hearts, highly lifted up in our minds. And God, as we leave this place, you would be highly lifted up in our lives. And so, God, we just pray for your grace to fall down now. We pray for your Holy Spirit to come in a mighty way. God, the word glory means heavy. And so, Father, I pray that you would come heavy on this place. And Lord, we would see you, we would know you, we would feel you, we would experience you, God, and we would be changed. God, change us <coughs> from the inside out, God. Help us to realize that we're not perfect. Help us to realize that we're not there yet, God, and that you are ever, every day, by the grace of your Son, pushing us closer and closer and closer into his image. And so, God, let us continue in that path. Let us continue in that way, dear Father. And And Lord, I I do pray in this moment, God, that you would speak through me, God. Speak the words of life that are in your your holy book, God. Speak the words of life that are that are sharp enough to divide bone and marrow, God, that 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 you have come and that you have spoken and your word is truth. And let it let it flow through my lips, God, and let it plow into our hearts. Lord, let us never be the same. God, we love you. Use this time for your glory. In Jesus holy name, I pray. Amen. I ask you to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, we only have one verse that's going to be up there this morning, uh, but we're going to be reading seven or eight verses, and so <clears throat> so I encourage you uh, to go ahead and, and turn to the chapter, because we're not going to spend a lot of time with, uh, with an opening uh, uh, example like I usually do. Uh, but what we're going to see this morning is, is a way that I kind of like to treat every scripture. When I read it, if it's a story, it's a, if it's a narrative, the way that I like to treat every narrative that I come across in the scriptures is by putting myself in the situation. And so I'll read a story in the, in the, in the scriptures and I'll say, how, how would I be if I was this person? What would I do if I was this person? And I, and I kind of try to figure it out that way. I try to personalize it uh, for myself. And so what we have to, this morning is we have a kind of awkward situation. We have this kind of a weird situation, a frustrating situation, and just kind of awkward altogether because of the parties that are included into it. And so I encourage you to turn with me again to Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to start in verse, verse 20 and read through verse 24 right now. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's going to be James and John, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant uh, that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. All right, so so let's back away now. We, we've read the passage now. Let's back away a little bit and, and put ourselves in this situation. 
What we see is that James and John and their mom pull Jesus off to the side, right? So they're going along their way. They're doing their thing. James and John and mom go and they pull Jesus off to the side. Now, they've been around Jesus long enough now. He's about to be crucified. They've been around Jesus long enough now that they know if they, if they mess up that Jesus is not bashful, okay? <laughs> Jesus isn't going to bow down and, and, and he's going to let you know that you messed up. So they, they come up with a little bit of a plan. They said, all right, here's what we're going to do. This is what we want. And, and we know that this is their desire because we see it in the remainder of the scriptures. We see that frequently the disciples were disputing of who was the greatest among them. And so they, they decided, let's, let, Jesus taught us that, you know, ask and you shall receive. So, boom, we're going to jump on this, but we're a little scared. We don't know how Jesus is going to respond. We don't know how Jesus is going to call us out. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get mom to ask, okay? Man moment of the month. All right? <laughs> Let's just get mom to ask for me, okay? And so they pull, pull Jesus off to the side, and they've already got this planned out. And mom says, hey, I have this question for you, Jesus. I have this question for you, all right? And so will you take my sons? And, and what is she really asking Jesus to do? She's asking for position, and she's asking for authority for her children. That's what she's doing. She says, I want you to raise my children up. And listen, no one else has to know about this. This is an eternal thing. Everybody will find out when they get to heaven and they'll be like, what are they doing there? Well, Jesus said, if you ask, you'll receive, you know? And so, ah, oh, why didn't I think of that? You know, th- this is, this is a, kind of a, a wink deal, right? All right, if, if the answer is yes, just wink at me, Jesus, okay? We'll, we'll be good right there. We don't have to say anything to anybody. Everybody will find out later. All right, so this is this is kind of the picture that's going on. Well, I, we don't. Scripture doesn't tell us how. Scripture does indicate that the other ten disciples were not around when this happened, but we don't know how word got back to them. What I kind of figure is one of the other moms was walking around too and was like, "Oh no, she did not." You know, I cannot believe that this woman just did this. And so she goes and she goes and tells some other moms or something like that. Anyways, the other ten disciples find out. And can you imagine for the next couple of days how bad it got for James and John? Oh, it's breakfast time. Do you need mommy to come cut your waffles? <laughs> you know, oh, mommy, you need some help from mommy, don't you? Oh, I bet they were getting picked on big time. And that was coming out of one side of their mouth. But you know what was coming out of the other side of their mouth or probably just out of their, their head was, thank God I didn't ask. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, but praise God that I didn't ask. Right. You know, I don't I don't want to be in the same situation that they are in. But what we see here really is a picture of frustration. What we see coming uh, by these other 10 disciples is a picture of frustration. It's kind of like Joseph. We remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. That he, he comes to his brothers and, that, and he has a dream and he says, basically he says, you will bow down before me. Uh, and, he, and he has the dream again and he says, you will bow down before me and mom and dad will bow down before me too. And they get mad, right? They get insanely jealous. They get incredibly mad. And what do they do? They, they, they try to, they, at first thought, they think they're going to kill him and then they kind of back away from that plan and then they sell him into slavery. And so we, we see just this frustration and, and the thing with Joseph was, he wasn't seeking power. Joseph was a brat kid who was just reporting <laughs> the, the dream that he had had. James and John, on the other hand, they came seeking power. They came saying, I want to rule over you. So you can imagine that the response of the other ten disciples is, you want to rule over me? Are you kidding me? Do you think that you're better than me? 
Do you think that you have some superiority, that you're closer to Jesus than I am? You can see the pride start to fill up their souls. And what I want you to see this morning is that we have the same tendency on both ends. We have the same tendency on both ends. We want to rule. We like to rule. We like to be in charge. We like to have authority. But on the same time, at the same time, we, we want to rebel. If anybody tries to rule over us, we want to rebel. We want to push it away. We don't like to have authority over us. And so Jesus sees what's going on. Jesus sees this picture. He's, he's let this whole thing play out to this point. And he sees the, the, the bickering. He sees the hearts behind it. And he says, that's enough. That's enough. We're going to have to call this to the carpet. And so let's read the remainder of this passage, verses 25 through 28. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what we have here in Jesus, what we have Jesus teaching his disciples is the foundation for kingdom service. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The foundation of kingdom service is that we have been served by Christ. I want to repeat that because that is, that is our meat, that is, our, that is where we are sticking for the remainder of this message. Is the foundation for kingdom service is that we have been served by Christ. Matt Chandler says this, The essence of Christian faith is not that we serve Christ, but that He has served us. And how did Jesus serve us? He says, And He gave His life as a ransom for many. So this is what Jesus is saying, I am here to serve you through my death. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to serve you, and I'm here to serve you through my death. Now what's interesting here is He says, The Son of Man. For the Son of Man did not come. Uh, to be served, but to serve. And, and this title is obviously, if you, if you look at it, if you have no experience with Scripture whatsoever, Son of Man, you would think this is de- dealing with the humanity of Jesus. And to some degree, it is. But in this context, it is most certainly referring to the divinity of Jesus. This is the same title Jesus uses for himself when he goes before the Sanhedrin and they start questioning him, right? This is the same title that he calls himself. Matthew 26, if you, if you want to flip over just a couple pages. Matthew 26, 63 and 64, it says, The high priest said to him, I charge you under the oath by the living God, tell us, listen to this question, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So we have this question, are you Christ? Are you the anointed one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? This is a, this is a question about divinity, right? This is a question if, if you are indeed God, all right? And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see who? The Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. So here's the question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? He says, yes, because I am the Son of Man. Jesus equates Son of Man with Son of God and with Christ. And he's referring back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, a prophecy where Daniel sees God, where he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest understood it, right? 
This wasn't confusing. This wasn't like, did he just say yes and then denied it by calling himself human? I don't understand what's going on. No, the high priest understood what Jesus said. In verse 65, it says, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. So there is no doubt here that what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, I am God. And as God, I don't need you. As God, I don't need you. As God, I have all authority. And I have all power, and I have all wisdom, and I have all knowledge, and you do not. As God, I have all creation, because I am the creator. I have all the resources of this world and and beyond at my fingertips, because I am the creator of this world and beyond, and you do not. I am worthy of all praise, and I am worthy of all honor, and I am worthy of all glory, and you are not. And at my name, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that I am Lord to the glory of God the Father, and that will not happen for you. Here's the point, guys. In all of history, in all of history, there is no one worthy of the exaltation that we give to Jesus Christ. He is the only one worthy of all of these things. But despite all of this... He died for us. Despite all of it. Despite the high exaltation. Despite being extremely, infinitely worthy. He died for you. And He died for me. See, in our world, we fight for power. In our world, we struggle for authority. And then we take that power, and we take that authority, and we lord it. We hold it over the heads of whom we have authority. And Jesus says, I legitimately have all authority. I legitimately have all power. But I humble myself enough to grab a towel and a basin and to wash your nasty feet. I humble myself enough, like the passage we were just quoting out of Philippians chapter 2. It says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so what we have here is a picture, okay? We have a picture. We serve because we have been served by Christ. And when we look at Christ, we see humility. We see a towel around his waist we see a basin in his hands and we see him washing dirty feet and we see him suffering giving up of his of of his glory being in the glory in the presence of the father to come down among us and to die a sinner's death we see this in jesus christ so what does scripture tell us to do what does scripture tell us to do john 13 15 i have set you an example that you should do as i have done for you as Jesus, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Christ-centered servants serve others because we have been served by Christ. Josh Patterson says, His service should melt our hearts and cause us to serve others out of sheer gratitude to Him. And I want us to focus on that word here. We should serve Christ and we should serve others out of gratitude for what Christ has, get, has done for us. And here's why I want to emphasize gratitude, because it is the opposite of what we tend to go to. It is the opposite of our tendency. Our tendency is to try to serve as a way of paying Jesus back. That's our tendency. Jesus has served me. Jesus has died for me. And now I have to pay Jesus back. 
But if that's the case, then our service is no different than the Old Testament law. Our service is absolutely no different to the, in the Old Testament law. It's an effort to earn God's favor. It's an attempt to be on God's good side. And what happens over time is it becomes a burden to us. It becomes a burden. It becomes a struggle. It becomes something else, an albatross to throw on our shoulders. But here's the question. What service are we going to do that's ever going to be good enough to make up what Jesus did for us? What service is going to... To, to, to prompt Jesus to say, well, now your service is the equivalent of mine. Really? I mean, I, let, let's think about this. What quality of service? How often do we have to serve, uh, you know, in, in order to equal this out? It reminds me of the movie Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan was the greatest movie for the preacher until the last minute of the movie, right? <laughs> Saving Private Ryan is about a band of soldiers who go seeking after someone who is lost, and they go and they fight and they fight until finally they die in, so that this soldier may live and go home and be at home. And so, so we have this great analogy to the gospel, and what amazing, amazing movie it is until you get to the very end of the movie, and he gets shot in the gut, and he's laying there, and he's talking to him and saying earn this and you're like well great <laughs> there goes my example you know <laughs> earn this no how can you possibly earn someone giving their life for yours what can you do what gift what service what 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 can you do here's the point we cannot pay god back for what christ did for us on Calvary. And here's an important extra to throw on there. We don't owe him anything either. We don't owe God. We don't owe Jesus. We don't owe the Holy Spirit. We owe them nothing. All the debt of our sin was completely paid for on the cross of Calvary. Our debt is paid in full. Listen, if we serve to pay Jesus back, if we serve to be a good Christian, if we serve to get on God's good side, then we are missing the whole point of the gospel and we are living under law instead of living under grace. But we serve because we have been served. We serve because we have been served. We have been set free from the law and its condemnation. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Listen, we have been set free from the law and its condemnation. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a little survey of ways that we should not serve. And I want, us to, I want you to pay attention here because I think in our hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, we're going to find ourselves slipping into these paths. And what Jesus is saying is you're free from that. You're free from that. You don't have to serve this way, but you, you can serve because I have served you. And I want to start out with one that's going to kind of shock you because it sounds holy, it sounds biblical, and it is to a degree, but Satan can take one thing and twist it, what, take a good thing and make it seem like a bad thing. And here's, here's the deal. We don't serve out of compassion. As Christ-centered followers of Jesus Christ, that was redundant. But uh, we do not serve out of compassion. Now, uh, compassion is a powerful motivator for service. 
There's absolutely no doubt about that. And we read in Scripture that Jesus was full of compassion. If you're probably very familiar with this passage in Matthew 9, 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But the reality is, compassion in and of itself, in in our flesh alone, will always fade. Think about the first time that you saw one of those commercials of starving children in Africa. Think about the first time you saw it. You saw the flies swarming around the kids. You saw their their bellies bloated with gases because they haven't eaten. You, You saw this. And what happened to you? Your heart was drawn. Your heart was moved. There was something going on. There was, there was a moment of human compassion that just said, this is wrong. I need to do something about this. What happens when you see it now? See, I, I, I did a youth camp for years and years and years. Uh, I, I made that sound like I'm 50. <laughs> I did youth camp for nine years. <laughs> and, uh, and anyways, uh, uh, every year where we would go, they would, they would promote Compassion International. And every year, Compassion would say, you know, adopt a, adopt a child, it's $35 a month or whatever it is, and, and they would show you all of the things that they would be getting and all the things that they don't have right now. And every year, the same pattern resulted. After the first couple years, anyways, the same pattern resulted every single year. And that was that the halls were filled with junior high kids, middle school kids who were coming to camp for the first or second time and were like, oh, I'm completely blown away by this. But all my juniors and seniors were sitting still. All my juniors and seniors were not moving an inch because they had seen this. They had seen this plea. They had seen this campaign. They had seen this thing over and over and over again. And so what we have here is a, is a picture that compassion in and of itself, compassion that is simply attached to our flesh, does not last. Compassion must be connected with the gospel. Because by itself it wanes with our emotions. But with the gospel it reminds us that Jesus loves these people as much as he loves me. And Jesus loves these people in the same way that he loves me. And that's why I heard a pastor say, When we remember how gracious and compassionate Christ has been to us, our compassion is as sustainable as our remembrance of the gospel. So here's what, here's what our reality is. It's not a bad thing to have compassion. I don't want you to hear that. What I want you to hear is that Christ-centered service connects compassion with the cross. And it and must connect compassion with the cross in order for it to last. Secondly, we don't serve out of guilt. Church, we do not serve out of guilt And this is a fault of the church, and it has been a fault of mine to use this tactic in order to get you to serve. It has been my fault, and it has been the fault of of many, many men and women before me. Listen, if you have time to go fishing, then you have time to share the gospel. If you have time to go hunting, you have time to go and, and work at a church work day. If you know, uh, or, or you know how much, and this is, this is kind of the opposite, opposite way of doing the same thing, you know how much better you'll feel about yourself if you just serve one hour a week, right? We've heard these pleas before. If you don't step up, then this ministry is going to die. If you don't step up, no one else will either, and this ministry is going to die. All this is is guilt. All this is is guilt. And listen, I admit that I'm guilty of it. I apologize to you. I apologize that I have done and I have used these tactics. And the reason I have not felt guilty about it until I or or convicted about it until uh, a little bit of a later time is because it's true. It's true. It's not like I'm lying to you. 
It's not like preachers have for all times been lying and, 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 and saying, you know, if, if you have time to go fishing, yeah, you actually do have time to go share the gospel, right? That, there's, no, there, there's no lie about it. But here's the truth and something I learned. It is not my and it is not your responsibility to convict people of their sins. It's not my responsibility to convict you of your sins. And it's not your responsibility to convict me of my sins. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Now listen, don't get me wrong. It is our responsibility to confront each other in love about our sins. But we cannot change anybody's hearts. It is the Holy Spirit. It is God's job to change someone's heart. So here is the picture from Scripture. We are not to serve out of guilt. But we are called to excuse me, to encourage each other in Christ. We are called to encourage each other in Christ. Listen, I can try to twist your arm and make you feel really, really guilty. But all I'm doing is really I'm resorting back to the law again. I'm resorting back to the law. But the truth of the gospel is that we are no longer guilty before God. We are no longer guilty before God. So instead, we encourage each other. We encourage each other by reminding each other of Christ. By reminding each other of what Christ has done for us. And not just with our words. Because that can be used in a manipulative, guilty way too. Jesus died for you, so you need to go rape. You know, that, that can be used in a manipulative way too. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we just simply remind each other of what Christ has done. And then allow Christ to do the work. And we remind each other with our mouths. And then we remind each other with our lives. By serving and loving each other. Just as Christ served and loved us. First Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11 says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. So listen, what we have here, it's a short presentation of the gospel. This is what has happened right here. Paul has laid out a short presentation of the gospel. We're not appointed to suffer wrath. We are appointed to spend eternity with Christ. And we're going to do it together. And then he says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Just as in fact you are doing. Our encouragement is founded on the gospel. Our encouragement of one another to one another is founded on the gospel. We encourage by loving and serving each other. And we encourage by what Jesus has done for us. And so Christ-centered servants serve out of the freedom that has been given in Christ by His grace. Alright? So we don't serve out of compassion alone. We don't serve out of guilt. And we do not serve out of obligation. Alright? We do not serve out of obligation. What does our passage say? If we go back to our passage, it says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? And to give. He came to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not die because of the force of the Roman government. Alright? Jesus, Jesus didn't say, ah, well, I can't overcome the Romans, and so that's the reason I'm going to the cross. Jesus did not die because He was chained to the will of His Father. Now, I want you to think through that one. That might sound a little heretical at first. I'm not saying that their will was separate in any way, shape, or form. What I'm saying is that God did not force Jesus to the cross. What Scripture teaches us is that Jesus gave His life away. As a gift to man out of his love. And what has happened in the church is that obligation and tradition has ruled so much of how we do stuff today. Obligation and tradition are probably in the opposite order. Tradition induced obligation. 
rules so much of how we do things today. I'll give you an example. I talked to a pastor who told me a story about a dying ministry in his church. A ministry that was large at one point, was a foundational ministry of the church when the church started, but over time just was dwindling and dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. And so he went to a meeting. And at this meeting, there were three people who were still involved in the ministry. And he went to encourage them. And so he went and he, he sat among these three people and he said, I want to let you know I am so impressed that you are so faithful to your ministry. That even though the numbers have gone and even though you don't see the same results that you used to see, that you are still so faithful to your ministry. And he told me that the leader of the group said, we, we just don't want it to die on our watch. <laughs> we just don't want it to die on our watch. So what was this person really saying? We don't want to be here either. <laughs> we don't want to be here either. But this is a traditional ministry of the church. And these three people felt obligated to it. Here's the reality, as we said earlier. God doesn't need us for anything. God doesn't need us for anything. Let me read you this passage out of Isaiah chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of your God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? And I want you to listen to, uh, well, we're going to get there in a second, but listen to this one statement. This is the only statement in this passage with an exclamation point. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. And then, it, then he goes on to tell us how that makes him feel. He says, your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They, they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So this is, what, this is what God says. He says, stop bringing me meaningless offerings because they are detestable. I cannot bear them. I hate them. They are a burden to me and they make me weary. So here's our picture. If we apply this to modern day today, sacrifice and service that is done merely out of tradition and obligation is not a delight to our God. It is repulsive to Him. It is absolutely repulsive to Him. God doesn't need our actions. God wants our hearts. God doesn't need our actions. God wants our hearts. Christ-centered service gives itself away in love and as an expression of gratitude towards the gift of love we have received in Christ. So we don't serve out of compassion alone. We don't serve out of guilt. We don't serve out of obligation. And finally, we don't serve out of pride. Philippians 2.5, right before we hear about the humiliation of Jesus, in verse 5 it says, Your attitude should be the same. As that of Christ Jesus. Here's the idea. We don't serve to exalt ourselves. We don't serve to exalt ourselves. Those who serve out of pride almost never serve where there is not something to gain. Those who serve out of pride almost never serve when there is not something personal to gain. They avoid the little hole-in-the-wall service projects, and they set up camp at the big well-to-do service opportunities. They relish in public service, and they vanquish in private service, and they are Pharisees. 
They are Pharisees. Luke eleven forty two says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So here's the idea. Everyone knew what the Pharisees gave. Everyone knew because the Pharisees were very, uh, very open about how they gave and what they did and how they served and how they knew the law and how they studied and all that kind of stuff. Everyone knew that they were law driven in their giving. They were law driven in their service to the Lord. But Jesus said, you are you are wide open in these public matters, but you disappear in the private ones. You disappear in the ones that will not bring you glory, in the ones that will not bring you any kind of honor. But what do we see with Jesus? When, pe- when Jesus healed people and when Jesus performed all kinds of miracles, what did, he, what did he turn and tell people? Don't go say anything. Don't go say anything. I don't want you, I, I don't want you spreading this. I don't want this getting out. And here's the idea. Jesus was not looking for a crowd. Jesus was not looking for attention. Jesus did not find his success in numbers. When crowds formed around Jesus, what do we see Jesus doing over and over again in the New Testament? He starts teaching hard teachings. Hate your mother and father. Eat my body and and drink my blood. We start seeing these hard teachings and all of a sudden scripture says, and many left. And many left. So here's the idea. Christ-centered service does not look for praise or publicity, but rather lowers itself in Christ-like humility. September 11th, 2001, there's a man named David Carnes. He was working as an accountant in Connecticut. The World Trade Centers were, were struck, and his whole office was obviously, like you remember, paralyzed kind of for the moment. And... And they just sat there and watched on TV. After a few minutes, Dave got up and he went next to his boss and he said, Listen, boss, I'm going to be gone for a while. So he left. David, for 23 years, served as a, as a Marine. And he went to a barber shop and he went and got a crew cut. And he went home and he put on an old pair of his fatigues. And he got in his car and drove 120 miles per hour until he, re- he reached ground zero uh, six hours after the catastrophe. Uh, he was hoping, he didn't know, but he was hoping because of his outfit that he'd be allowed onto the, the, the heap of ash and dust and metal. And so he, he went in there and the police saw his uniform and they waved him on by. And so he, he came up on the the... The, the structure that had fallen down, these hundred-story buildings that had fallen down. And he was standing and he was looking for, for survivors. He was trying to find anyone that maybe had survived. The structure apparently at some point started to quake. And so the, the police told the rescue workers, get off of the structure, get off of the structure. But because of his uniform, he was allowed to stay on the structure. Nine hours after the buildings of 9-11 fell down, Dave Carnes heard what sounded like a faint cry and the tapping on pipes. Once he recognized the sound, he called rescue workers back up and said, please come dig right here. And two men were saved because of his service. So what we see here is we see a man who took off his suit, put on a rescue fatigue, and stepped into the despair and darkness of 9-11. And in the same way, but to a much, much 
much greater degree. We see our Savior, who took off his royal robes. He put on humanity. And he stepped into the muck. And he stepped into the mire. He stepped into the desolation of mankind. And he served us. This month, we pray for a revival. If you haven't come on a Monday night, I encourage you to come tomorrow night at the Ashley, 7 o'clock. But here's the point. This isn't just a free pitch moment. Here's what I'm doing. We've been praying for revival. And what we've seen so far is that God desires Christ-centered worship and God desires Christ-centered community within His church. But what we see today is through our community, we must be Christ-centered servants. Through our community with each other, we must be Christ-centered servants. Serving each other and the world because we have been served so faithfully, so deeply, and so truly by our Savior. God, I love you, and I seek you, Father. God, I ask by your grace that you would just help us to, to rehash in our own hearts that moment, God, that moment where you captured us, that moment where we surrendered to you, that we would look up to the cross, Father, and we would remember what you have done for us, not because we had earned it, not because we deserve it. Not because of us. But because of you. Because of your love. Let us look up to the cross. Let us look up to your bleeding hands and feet. Let us look up the thorns in your head. And let us bow down and say thank you. Let us bow down in gratitude and say, Thank you, Lord. Because of what you have done for me, God, I am a new person. Because of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice and His love, I will never be the same. Lord, let that resonate every day. Let us wake up with you on our mind. Let us go through our day with you on our mind. Let us go to bed with you on our mind. God, may you be the centerpiece of every part of our life, including our worship, including our community, and including our service. Let us serve each other in love. Let us serve each other because we have been loved. God, I pray to this morning, God, if there's, there's something going on in, in our hearts, God, that we would be able to go to the cross. Lord, where there is unforgiveness, we would be able to go to the cross and see our forgiveness. Where there is lackadaisical service, God, I pray that we would be able to go to the cross and realize the depth of your service. Where there is broken relationships, God, I pray that we would be able to go to the cross and see how you came to fix our relationships. God, whatever it is, wherever our heart is, whatever the trouble is, we need you. We need Jesus. The gospel does not end with our salvation. The gospel begins with our salvation. And it moves us forward for the rest of our life. Help us to get a glimpse of that. Help us to move forward in that. Help us to live for you through that, Father. God, if there are people in here who do not know you, God, I pray by your grace, 
Lord, that you would open their hearts, you would convict them of sins, they would repent and give their lives to Jesus. Father, I pray for those in here who know that they have a calling on their life, that you are leading them to do something in particular. God, I pray that they would look to the cross and see, yes, God, this is what you did for me, and now I will serve you. Not out of guilt, but out of love. So, Father, whatever's going on, whatever's in our hearts, whatever challenges, whatever struggles, whatever joys, whatever pleasures, God, let us, let us look to you. Let us thank you. Let us seek you. Let us find you. God, we love you. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.